Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. We're talking today with Dr. Chris Ketchum, an independent researcher and author of Flowers and Honeybees, a study of morality in nature. Dr. Ketchum, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for um, putting this all together. So I'd like to start first off with sort of the thesis of your paper, uh, which is, is morality solely a human creation or can we find evidence of morality in nature? Basic answer is the antecedents of morality can be found in life's existential propensity towards optimization. And what optimization is, is choosing the best among different options, considering current conditions, but also considering the capabilities of the the creature we're talking about. For example, in the middle of a drought, the honeybee can uh, fly down to the the stream that's still flowing and get water. The plant cannot. So it's got to optimize its own processes to be able to use more energy to find water through growing roots than perhaps uh, using the bright sunlight to, for photosynthesis. So they're constantly, uh, most creatures are constantly optimizing their decision rather than maximizing their decision. They're trying to do what's necessary in order to persist and thrive. I thought it was really interesting. You write that plants are aware and they cognize and honeybees think. Um, you know, for anyone who maybe has a collection of plants in their house right now, like succulents, uh, you know, maybe you talk to them or give them kind of personalities and say, this is how they're feeling. Um, but I wasn't aware that uh, plants cognize. Can you just tell me, what does that mean? Are plants communicating with the bees on some very basic level? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to look at. There's no one easy answer. And when I look at uh the notion of cognition versus thinking, there is not a perfect answer for that. Uh, the idea of cognition, I believe, comes out of work do, done with artificial intelligence. So what the idea is, is there's something different from what we call neurological thinking that perhaps artificial intelligence or even the plant can do. So let's kind of throw the evidence out there and see what we can come up with. They can't think because they have no neurons. And let's give thinking to creatures that have neurons. They're all middle, meaning that there is no distal end, like the honeybee has a brain or the human has a brain. We have no brain. And they're also an aggregate of processes that communicate with each other. And this is a form of distributed intelligence rather than the close concentration. I think close second to the plant might be the octopus that has significant nerve ganglions all the way throughout its body, and it's not just centrally uh, centrally focused. Uh, the processes in the plant are aware, they sense the world, and they take action upon what is sensed. In other words, they're open to the world, and they're centrifugally oriented to it. What I mean by centrifugally oriented towards the world, they push out, they push out, they push their roots down, they extend their branches up, 
they call to the honeybee with color, scent, and uh, shape to come visit me. So they're like giant communicating billboards. You know, we see billboards all the time. And the flower sees these billboards as saying, hey, I'm open to business. Now, what, what plants can also do is they can retain experiential knowledge for use in the future. So they can remember what one thing happened and do that there. And they do, do the same thing later on, for example, uh, when, when they've been uh, uh, injured by some kind of pathogen, they can release appropriate um, pheromones to overcome that problem. But the difference is, is that while they can remember things, they, they cannot speculate on things other than those that confront the plant at the moment. So they exhibit a kind of mindfulness and intentionality without having a mind. That's kind of how I'm thinking about all of this through the various different pieces of evidence of the ex existentiality of plants that's different from honeybees, but it's very similar in some respects. So they have, as you said, this experiential knowledge. So, you know, they know perhaps that maybe if they're a brighter color or they extend their roots in a certain way that that passes down a good gene maybe to the next generation of plants. But like you said, they don't have brains, so they can't uh, make a moral judgment, right? No, they, they, they can't make a moral judgment, but I think where the, the morality comes in is the fact that they are they're very much oriented towards the honeybee and vice versa. They have co-evolved towards each other. In other words, um, there, there are three basic types of things that uh, all creatures can use uh, to adapt to changes in the world. And one, of course, is thinking, which is, or uh, uh, reasoning, which is, can be done very quickly uh, and it solves problems in the immediate vicinity. There's something else called epigenetics, which is a fairly new science. It's when genes can turn themselves on or off depending upon uh, conditions in the environment and um, when they do that, they can retain that information and keep that gene on, for example, against certain pathogens and even pass that down. And the third, and that's 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 a fairly short-term situation. It may involve just one generation, it may have involved multiple generations. But then there's the big hammer, and that's um, evolution itself, where you have mutation mutating things. But what's interesting about these two creatures is that they have evolved towards each other. So they've had to use behaviors in addition to genetics and epigenetics in order to come together. In other words, instead of requiring uh, a Machiavellian sovereign, as uh, Thomas, uh, as Hobbes has said, might be necessary to get out of the state of nature, the other is the sovereign. And they look towards the other to focus on how they both can better benefit from and exploit each other. I'm wondering if you can get into these uh, three requirements for the emergence of morality in nature uh, that Singer writes about. Um, how does the honeybee and uh, how do flowers fit that bill? 
Okay, we have three things that um, that Singer says are antecedent to the development of morality. One is a social group. For example, right now, the two of us are a social group. When I'm driving down the highway, it's a kind of social group. I go to the club, it's a social group. I'm at the family, it's a social group. Home, it's a social group. Second is restraint. In other words, that there's restraint of action against the other. There's a consideration of the other. And the third is the ability to judge. And I believe that both flowers and honeybees can judge. So let's look at what that kind of thing is. Their orientation to each other is uh, asymmetrical. They, as I mentioned, the flower is centrifugal. It goes outwards. It looks outwards towards the world. It advertises outward. The honeybee is centripetal. It looks down to the earth where the, where the, where the middle of the flower is. It looks to the flowering plant. It looks to the hive. So it's orient. So these two orientations converge, even though symmetrical. They do communicate with each other. The honeybee, when it enters the flower, advertises through its vibrations or through uh, how it uh, walks across the, the flower itself or falls into the flower. That is a pollinator and not a predator. And they both benefit each other and exploit each other. What I mean by that is the, the honeybee benefits from the pollen and the nectar that the flower produces. The flower benefits from the mobility of the honeybee to be able to go from its, its flower to another flower and carry pollen with the honeybee to po help pollinate the other flower. How do they exploit each other? Well, the flower exploits the capability of the honeybee to fly and also the energy it takes to do so. And the honeybee exploits the flower for the energy that uh, they use to produce uh, the building blocks for what the honeybees eat. There's a kind of a farmer's market or commerce here because there's an exchange of value. When you think about it, the honeybee is exchanging its uh, mobility and its energy to fly to the honeybee and uh, fly to the flower and fly again to other flowers of the same species. And the same thing is happening is that for the treat, the treat that the honeybee is given in flower and nectar, that's being juxtaposed against the energy it requires to produce the, the uh, nectar and pollen. And also it, ex it exchanges the, these goods for the flight capability of the honeybee to help pollinate its flowers. So I guess that cuts back to uh, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, uh, which is, you know, you argue that evolution itself provides evidence that morality exists in nature, that life isn't inherently cruel because it offers creatures ways to optimize their existence. Um, but, you know, when I think of the term evolution, I think, survival of the fittest, which sounds like something rather cruel. So how does optimization um, actually move creatures toward good or toward moral behavior? Well, I think that the thing that we have to understand is that 
Optimizers tend to avoid unnecessary conflict. And in other words, uh, Hobbes's problem with the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, uh, requiring a sovereign, I don't think is absolutely necessary in this context. Now, what also optimizers do, they work within nature's parameters rather than against them. In other words, they consider what is available uh, to them in the situation. They consider the risk appetite of the creature. Uh, for example, uh, some honeybees, some of the honeybee workers will grow up to be foragers. Others will be guard bees. Some of them won't need to leave the nest. The decisions they make are optimal or according to their individual risk appetite. We're gonna find the same thing in just about every other kind of social group. Wolf packs are gonna be different from different wolf packs, for example. Mutualism requires two species to work towards each other, both in benefit and exploitation. So I'm seeing that the flower and honeybee mutualism, the other is the sovereign, not the Machiavellian prince. So I'm, I'm seeing in this particular environment, which I'm looking at as saying, here's an instance in nature where there is no real competition between the two species. They've grown towards each other, see, meaning that they find value in each other. And this kind of the other is a sovereign is a very Levinasian idea of responsibility to the other as being a, a primary ethical or moral uh, process in humanity. So I'm interested, after you wrapped up this study, are any other creatures groups um, that you would like to delve into and see if this applies to them? Um, after I read this, I was thinking, well, maybe maybe humans aren't the most moral, I guess, compared to sort of the relationship, that kind of symbiotic relationship that honeybees and flowers have. One of the issues is we have to work through the problem of a common commodity, competing for a common commodity in human relationships. That's the number one, I think, problem that makes it difficult for uh, humans to become like uh, the flower and honeybee mutualism. I think that's a difficult proposition that needs to be overcome. Uh, I think there are a lot of other uh, mutualisms, a lot of other relationships that deserve study. I only have done this one, but if you think about it, there are uh, the ant colonies, for example, or another eusocial species. Some of them uh, cultivate aphids, for example, where they get a drink from the aphid who's been stuffing on the plant. So there's a lot of other um, creatures that we can look at for uh, the possibility of the emergence of morality in different situations. Dr. Chris Ketchum, he's author of Flowers and Honeybees, A Study of Morality in Nature. Dr. Ketchum, thanks so much again for talking with us today. Thanks, great talking with you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.